Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined for this episode by Rob Sheffield to discuss his 2017 book, Dreaming the Beatles. Rob is a columnist for Rolling Stone, where he's been writing about music, TV and pop culture since 1997. Dreaming the Beatles is a unique book in that it looks at what the Beatles mean to the generations that grew up after they'd split up. Why are the Beatles more famous and more beloved now than ever? How long can this last? I love Rob's book as it really celebrates the Beatles' music, both solo and as a group, and his enthusiasm, knowledge and passion really come through in this interview. Rob Sheffield, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Hey, Joe. How are you? Huge fan of your podcast. So this is a dream come true for me. This is a, a, a Shea Stadium gig for me. So thank you very much. Huge fan of this podcast. Thank you for doing it. Thanks, Rob. That's really kind of you to say. Um, so we're here to talk about, quite obviously, Dream of the Beatles, uh, the love story of one band in the whole world. You start the book by saying that the Beatles story starts for you uh, on that cold January London morning with Paul McCartney uh, muttering thanks Mo to Maureen Starkey, Ringo's wife. What did you mean by that, first of all? And what were your kind of aims and aspirations in writing Dreaming the Beatles? Well, Dreaming the Beatles, I wanted to write a book about the Beatles that wasn't about the 60s. You know, I wanted to write about the Beatles not as something magical that happened in the past, you know, a moment that happened years and years before you were born. But it's something that happens every day. The ongoing story of the Beatles is by far the most important and most interesting to me aspect of this story, that this is a love story that just keeps going and just keeps growing. I always love the beautiful words of Derek Taylor in, in the the anthology CD liner notes where he said that the Beatles were the 20th century's great romance. And that just seemed like such a beautiful way to put it. But that was funny. That was, that was 1995. That probably seemed like an extravagant statement then, but now it's like 20th century. Come on. 21st century. The Beatles are a hundred times more popular and famous than they were. And that to me is the part of the story that I wanted to, to understand better and that I wanted to, tell and wanted to, to push forward is because, you know, it certainly makes sense that the Beatles were huge in their time. That makes sense. That almost goes without saying. If they weren't the biggest band of the 60s, somebody else would have been, you know, but there's nothing else like the Beatles in our culture in the 2020s. There's nothing comparable. Like there's no Beatles of movies. There's no Beatles of books. There's no Beatles of sandwiches. There's no Beatles of anything else. There's no equivalent anywhere in our culture. The Beatles are just this ongoing story. And also I, something I love about the Beatles story is the way that the four boys who were the Beatles after the Beatles broke up, they slowly had to realize that they were part of this story that was going on within the men without them. And that even though they would really love for the world to stop with the Beatles and, and give them a little peace and quiet, the world has always loved the Beatles. And I'm sure you've seen it up close where you know a little kid who comes in like never having heard the Beatles before completely flips hearing them. It's, it's, it's a scary thing to see almost because there's no persuasion, no conversion, no backstory needed. You know, like it's just an instantaneous thing. Certainly is. I, I absolutely agree. Um, so let's, let's look at the, the kind of chapters of the book, some of the, the ones that stood out for me. You 
dive into the Lennon McCartney friendship relationship relatively early on in the chapter, which you which you title I, I Call Your Name. John and Paul's relationship, obviously endlessly fascinating, has been looked at in countless books and articles. Do you think people are starting to understand a bit more about the significance and the kind of mechanics of that friendship? What do you think it was about that friendship that that really worked um, for you? And as a kind of uh, postscript to that, you write in the book about when John plays Madison Square Garden in 1974 with Elton John, he chooses to play I Saw Her Standing There, uh, a song by his estranged fiance. (laughs) Paul which is a great a very John way of of putting something what significance was that do you think what a beautiful moment it's really amazing when you listen to it that John is on stage he's terrified he he tells the crowd at the end he's like I have to go backstage so I can throw up now he's terrified doing this and all he has to do is step on stage and people are so overjoyed seeing him the context is that he's done this number one song with Elton John, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, which you listen to it, it's at least, it sounds at least 50-50 like an Elton song, you know, like John wrote it, but Elton adds the sweetness that that made it such a beautiful hit at the time. And they had a bet, if it went to number one, then John was going to go on stage with Elton in, of all places, Madison Square Garden for Thanksgiving. And John did not think he would have to keep that bet, but as, as it turned out, Elton, Elton drives a hard bargain. So Elton brings him on stage, and it's, it's really beautiful that John is so sort of helpless, deer in the headlights. He hasn't been on a stage in years, let alone a stage this huge. And also, this is New York. This is where he lives. This is his town now. If, if he should feel safe anywhere, it should be here. And it's just kind of remarkable that in that moment, he's just so terrified and he chooses to share that moment with Paul, which is completely uncalled for. Nobody asked him for anything like that. And that of all the Beatles songs to do, that they're doing this Paul song. I saw her standing there, a song that Paul wrote and, and sang lead on. And that he begins it saying, well, I'd like to do a song by an old estranged fiance of mine named Paul. And it's really kind of beautiful to hear the crowd respond to that. And John, he didn't have to do that. He could have done a song from sometime at New York City and people still would have been overjoyed, you know? It's John there on stage. These people will be telling the story the rest of their lives, no matter what he sings, no matter what he says, that he chooses to spend that moment with Paul and sort of to to call upon Paul for strength, long distance, almost like a help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only help. There's something so beautiful about that and about that bond that they shared. And it's a friendship that's like no other, yet it's it's like every other. We all have friendships where we're either the John or the Paul. I'm Paul in most of my friendships, except with my sisters, I'm John, which is really weird for me. <laughs> There's a lot of different relationships, but everybody knows to be the John in a friendship, to be the Paul in a friendship. And the fact that even when they tried to separate themselves and, and move on and live separate lives, that they are still so bonded and that they still understand each other so intimately, no matter what's going on. It's one of the central mysteries of my life, which is why it's really the center of the book. (laughs) It's a wonderful moment. It's just a shame there was very limited film footage of it. It would have been great to have seen it. Um, Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Ringo. I really enjoyed your your chapter on, on Ringo. And you make the point that I'd never really thought of previously is that he's just about 
the beetle that the other three never fall out of love with and the public never really fall out of love with. And also in, in recent years, we've seen his technical ability start to be really appreciated. Why do you think that was? What, what was it that you think about Ringo that has led both John, Paul and George and the planet at large to, <laughs> to stay essentially uh, in love with Ringo? It's amazing. He might be the world's most beloved human. Honestly, Paul is his only competition. But the difference is that lots of people like to argue about Paul. Lots of people, you know, like take pleasure in, in disliking Paul. And nobody hates Ringo. Ringo is so universally beloved. There's a great quote in the Hunter Davies biography where Ringo says, if you had a poll to see who is everybody's favorite Beatle, I would come in last. If you had a poll for everybody's second favorite Beatle, he's like, I would win that one in a landslide. And it's so funny because... It's so true. And you can see even in the earliest years of the Beatles, he is the crowd pleaser. He's the one who instinctively knows how to turn on a crowd, especially the little kids. You watch that wonderful BBC production of A Midsummer's Night's Dream and Ringo is the lion and he's doing, and even then Ringo is the kiddie's choice. But it's funny how for people now, Ringo, the, the sort of you know, maybe like snobbishness about Ringo in, in the 70s, like maybe like a certain like discomfort with him has su such a distant cultural memory that it would seem strange to even tell anybody about it. But Ringo was, he was the one that all the other Beatles loved and depended on. And they all did their best singing when Ringo was drumming. He was a singer's drummer. He took pride in that. He still takes pride in that. When I interviewed him last year, he said, I drum for singers. And that's why singers love me because I don't play all over them. And it's undeniable that Ringo brings out something in a singer that nobody else does. And so it's funny when you think of how many people have tried to do Hey Jude over the years, but nobody can do it. And it's not because it's an impossible song to sing, but because it's a drummer's song as much as it is, as it is a singer's song. You can't sing that song. You can't go so deeply into yourself unless Ringo is holding down that beat in a way that nobody else can, which is kind of amazing when you consider that Ringo was actually in the bathroom when they began recording the song and doesn't show up until nearly a minute into it. You think about the songs that they did with and without Ringo, well, all three of the other Beatles, but they all felt so brave when Ringo was behind them, you know? So think about a song as famous as In My Life. Again, that's a song that lots of people cover and a lot of people try to sing, but you can't sing that song unless Ringo is right behind you saying, Keep going. Next line coming up. You got this. You got this. And that's what Ringo does. John summed it up best when at the Let It Be Get Back sessions when he was doing Don't Let Me Down, which is a very brave and for him, very raw and vulnerable song. He's talking to Ringo about the intro and he says, give me a little, you know, give me the courage to come screaming in. And that's that really sums up what Ringo does. He, he gave the other Beatles the courage to come screaming in and he gives us that courage as well. Beautifully put. I also have to shout out, recently I've, I found myself listening to a, a copy of Ringo's Rotogravure solo record <laughs> from uh, 1976. Uh, the, one of the things about this podcast and doing the Instagram page is um, people obviously approach you and suggest books and songs and records. And someone sent me quite an impassioned e email about that record. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and listen to it. Not on streaming services in the UK as we speak. Uh, so uh, I had to get it from elsewhere. And yeah, there's there's a, a few gems on there. I, I mean, in fact, there's there's 
maybe we'll see have you got any view maybe we'll see a bit of a, a resurgence in some of the solo records that, that Ringo made through the 70s I hope so I I keep saying Okuza Blues is a great great album to me that's a top 10 Beatles solo album maybe a top five Beatles solo album that album is so perfect it's so perfect for Ringo also and people say oh well you know they weren't his songs also he didn't even choose the songs he just shows up in nashville the producer has already picked out the songs from him from total anonymous music row songwriters for hire you know the band is there like he only spent three days you know with these people that he'd never met banging out this record and yet that's the essence of ringoness that you pluck him down anywhere and he will make that situation a band and he will make songs out of what they play that's the magic he does that's why he still drums with Ringo's all-star band. Nobody would mind if he just wanted to sit on an easy chair on stage and just, you know, sing photograph. The way he sees it, he wants to be in a band and he, he spends, you know, half the show behind his drum kit drumming. It's just kind of amazing. The essence of Ringo Ness. There's a book title right there, Rob. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and it's a beautiful Zen and all the other Beatles felt it. And it's really weird that he was the one that none of them ever criticized None of them ever had a, a, a side eye for Ringo, and it's unbelievable. And that's just kind of his universal effect on people. One of my favorite seconds of the book is your Robber Soul chapter, uh, which is just one of my favorite records. I often try and let other Beatle albums kind of overtake it, but they just can't get past it. <laughs> you make a great observation that I never thought of previously is that on the front cover of Robber Soul, they're kind of looking looking at you, looking at the public, and they're brimming with confidence. What is it about Robber Soul that is so important both to you and to the Beatles in their career? Well, it's amazing when you think of how totally influential Rubber Soul was, an album that completely broke the history of pop music in half. The album that said, you know, we're doing this and we're going our own way. And if you come along, great. But we're pretty sure you're going to come along. And you know, you mentioned the album cover. When you compare that to the cover of Beatles for Sale, which is just a year earlier, and you know, where they they're basically it, it looks like a hostage photo, right? Where it's like they're blinking their eyes in Morse code, saying, "Get us out of here." <laughs> and then you look at the cover of Rubber Soul, and wow, they are cocky, arrogant. They are absolutely overflowing with confidence. And it's funny that when you look at how influential Rubber Soul was, you would think that they went into it with more of a plan, but you know, like they they didn't they had just an album to bash out in a month in time for Christmas. And that's all they have is a deadline. And yet that was a, a real revelation to them that just spending a month, just trying any idea that comes into their head, cranking out music as fast as they could, they can make an album that was completely way ahead of where they'd been before. As Paul said at the time, this is where my adult life begins. If anybody listens to the previous records, they're listening to my childhood, but this is where my adult life begins. And it was funny that that like completely changed the way they made music because that's when they realized, oh, we can make a masterpiece pretty much anytime the mood strikes us. All we have to do is say, okay, I think we'll go into the studio and whip out a masterpiece from scratch. That didn't always work out as, as, uh, as a plan for a recording <laughs> session. But, you know, Revolver, they, they went into it saying, yep, yep, let's make a masterpiece. And they knew what they were doing. But with Rubber Soul, they were like, we need something for Christmas, but they were just so inspired and so inspired by each other. People talk about the influence of marijuana on that record, but I think it's more the influence of each other and the fact that 
they could throw out any idea and know that somebody would take that idea and push it forward and somebody else would take that idea and push it forward. I, was, I always think it's funny that the first day of recording, the two songs that John brought in are Run For Your Life, which is a total joke, total like vulnerable, self-defensive song. And the other one is Norwegian Wood, which is so candid, so vulnerable, so way ahead of what he did before. And it's almost like he brought in Run For Your Life to protect himself in case the other Beatles wanted to mock him for how personal he was in Norwegian Wood. It's almost like he brought in, I go in there with Norwegian Wood, they're, they're going to laugh at me. So I have to have a joke prepared. Those are the two songs that they bring for, for the first day. Those are the first two songs they play. As it turned out, the other Beatles love Norwegian Wood. And that's where John got that totally wiggy idea to take this weird Indian instrument that he just bought that he has no idea how to play. It's called a sitar. Nobody's heard of it in Western or European music at that point at all. And that just totally spur the moment he's going to do this with this song that John brought in. And the, that moment, I think, made them realize, okay, we could do this joke song, you know, Run For Your Life. We could do that one if you want to, too. But I guess because we need as many songs as we can possibly get. But I think doing Norwegian Wood that first day, I think that that just made them realize we can do anything and it will be great. And for the most part, they were right. They certainly were. You don't talk in a huge amount of detail about the kind of whys and wherefores of the breakup of the Beatles, which is, I think, quite refreshing in a way. But you do give a, you do write a chapter on the Abbey Road cover shoot, another uh, a day in London, much like the rooftop, just a somewhat warmer day. I mean, it's uh, it's essentially six pictures of four men crossing a road, but you, the book really brings to life the significance of that of that day um tell us a, a little bit about that what is it do you think what can we learn what can we glean from both the pictures on on the crossing itself and the the theme of the day itself well it's wild because you know they're going into this very self-consciously they know this is the cover photo for their last album that is specifically what's going on they were joking about calling the album everest because of jeff emmerich's brand of cigarettes and they were joking about going out to the Himalayas to do the album cover on Mount Everest. But the idea of traveling together, it's too much. They do not want to be together on that level where they're actually, you know, like schlepping out to the top of a mountain. So they do it in absolutely the most neutral, ordinary turf imaginable. Abbey Road, which at that point is not a famous name for a street. It's not the name of the studio yet. Abbey Road is just another road in, in England, very ordinary looking. And it's where they have to show up for work anyway. They have recording sessions. So this is their compromise solution. This is the most neutral, ordinary, non-controversial place they can think of to be. And of course, it's funny that after this album comes out, Abbey Road is the most famous spot in London. And if you go there now, it's just swarmed with people who are crossing back and forth, trying to get a selfie. And, and it's funny to see that, of course, it's a very busy street. So it's a constant battle between pedestrians and traffic. It's a real revelation. I didn't go there to Abbey Road until after I wrote the book. And it was such a revelation to me to see what an amazingly beautiful sort of sacred spot it is. There, it is very, very busy for traffic and the constant battle between Beatles pilgrims. And, you know, I, I was walking, trying to find it. And I was thinking like, oh, which way is Abbey Road? I should check the map. And I was like, check the map. Take a look around. You can see which people on the sidewalk are going to Abbey Road. And 
it's really funny that it's this compromise between a working studio that's still very busy and a, a very busy road in, in London, but this spot that, you know, it's holy ground just because the Beatles walked across it. And, you know, it was where they walked to work. It was a spot that, you know, meant something to them in the most ordinary day-to-day -day way possible. And yet they go into the photo shoot knowing that it's kind of a special occasion and they're a little bit resistant to them. You can see in the photos where they're lining up to cross the street, they're kind of mocking the occasion, you know, like they're striking poses, they're being sort of grandiloquent. And they set aside a couple of hours for this before the recording session, but of course it only takes 10 minutes. They go back and forth a few times and Ian McMillan gets the photo and they stop traffic for once and it, it works out fine, it, it's done early. So they end up with time to spare. And the really beautiful thing about that to me is Ringo decides to go shopping because they still have a couple hours to kill before the recording session. And George goes to the zoo and Paul and John, they just go to Paul's house, you know, which is right around the corner. And they just go, the two of them, and they just go and they hang out. And I, it's mind blowing to me that after this photo shoot, you know, the most famous and iconic image of the Beatles ever, that John and Paul, they just slip away just to hang out, just the two of them at Paul's house and it, it's weird that this is so unremarked on. I feel like this conversation that they had at the house, I, I don't know about you, Joe, wouldn't you absolutely kill for like to be a fly in the wall for that conversation? But to them, this was ordinary. They were, they, their friendship was so long running and so powerful despite all the forces already that were making war on it. It's fascinating to me. And it's fascinating how those bonds survived. I've written a lot about the Beatles breakup, especially... I did a Rolling Stone cover story on it last year. To me, like there's so many unanswered questions about the breakup, so many things we don't know, so many things that we all wish had gone differently. But it's really amazing that that bond between John and Paul was something that nobody else could really penetrate or interrupt. Mm, absolutely. Um, so let, let's move on from the, the Beatles in their own time uh, and kind of dig into the how the Beatles were perceived individually through the, the decades that, that came after a theme which has not been discussed anywhere near enough certainly until your book came out um it's interesting because you you use George's 1974 American tour as sort of a way of talking about the Beatles themselves through the 70s it was such a difficult tour for George <laughs> uh, I mean I, I've spoken You're so to... diplomatic yeah <laughs> well I, I've spoken to some other authors about it actually and um uh, yeah, and they all there's sort of a consensus that it was a combination of things that to make it a, a bit of a mistake. First of all, why do you think it was it was such a, an error for George? George's solo career really takes a long time to come back from from this. The records that follow are yet to be as well loved, certainly than some of John and Paul's albums. Um, do you think that, that this tour had a, a, a real impact on George? Yeah, it was obviously a traumatic experience for him. It was something that he never had to experience as a Beatle. And that was something that all four Beatles had in common in the 70s. The things that used to be easy were now just incredibly hard work. And I don't think it really entered anybody's mind that this, you know, being the first full-on tour by a member of the Beatles, certainly the first one doing Beatles songs. It's really weird how easy people forget that Paul refused to do any Beatles songs for the first few years of Wings. He was doing Wings tours and he was 
just not going to sing any Beatles songs. It took them until 1976 to start allowing Beatles songs into the set. So people think, well, you know, just a George Harrison solo tour. This was the first time one of the Beatles went out and was actually going to sing Beatles songs on tour. And he covered a lot of ground. It was a very ambitious tour. In those days, people had really sort of old-fashioned ideas about the physical conditioning required for a tour and the physical fitness involved. And the fact that George started out not really in shape to play a show and then just had like night after night of this. I mean, I know you must have listened to the bootlegs and it's really weird to hear how they, they really, they start off bad and, and like go really downhill. There was a, a great Rolling Stone story about the tour at the time. And after that, he tries out the first night and there's a quote from somebody who witnessed it, giving a very long quote about everything that was disastrous about the show. It's like, first, he's got to do a better job of, of singing and playing. He's got to do more Beatles songs. Second, he needs to control the, the interludes for the guest stars, Ravi Shankar and, and Billy Preston. He needs to cut down on that. And third, George needs to shut up. That, that's the last line of it. And the, the amazing thing about that quote is it's from his publicist, George's publicist, giving their opinion about the show the first night. That's maybe, maybe a bad sign, maybe a sign that it's time for a rethink. And it's definitely weird when you listen to the bootlegs, how different they are night to night. But, you know, he's definitely in decline. He could definitely tell moments where he wins the audience, loses the audience. The moment that I chose was, was that he's doing In My Life, which is a moment that is very intense. When you listen to it, any show of the tour, he starts to do In My Life. He doesn't say what it is. It starts out with that really sludgy intro. And it, it, it isn't really recognizable till he starts to sing. And then you can hear, and you know that George must have heard, you can hear the audience is so excited when they recognize what song this is. And it's a Beatles song. It's not even a George song. He's doing a John Paul song, a true John Paul collaboration. And, and it's a moment that you can hear. It really means something to them. And George cannot fail to notice night after night that people go crazy when they recognize the first line of the song. And he also has to notice that people die down very quickly when they hear him sing it because he can't hit the notes and he hasn't really rehearsed it and he doesn't know the melody very well. And the moment halfway through where he says, Billy Preston, and like Billy Preston takes it away. Billy Preston always did, like always giving them a lift. And you can hear the audience is so excited to cheer for the take it away, Billy Preston, that that is their favorite moment in the song because you can hear that it's really kind of horrified them, you know, what, what's happening with in my life. And when George changes the line to, in my life, I love God more, it's like he's greeted the fans and summoned up this very intimate memory for them all just to tell them it doesn't mean anything to him. It's horrifying to hear it now, you know, but to be a, a Beatle fan who had camped out all night for tickets to this, and this show sold out instantly, anybody got tickets, was camping out on the sidewalk the night before in, in the old way that we used to buy tickets. And that they are there, they clearly want to share this moment with George and they want to celebrate George. And, um, you know, it's crushing to them. It was crushing to the other Beatles. And it's very funny that, you know, for the other Beatles, it was, you know, they were all keeping an eye on this from afar, not necessarily from afar, you know, like John and Paul both went to the, the after party at the end of the tour. Uh, he wanted uh, John to uh, appear on stage age with him the way John had just done for Elton a week earlier. John claimed his astrologer said it was not the right day. 
it really like strange moment and, and very easy to forget and very often forgotten from the Beatles story. But the George 1974 tour, it's the first really high profile failure that any of the Soto Beatles have had. It was very traumatizing for George. His next album had a very sad song about it. This guitar can't keep from crying. You know, it's like really, it's tough for him. His, his music became so dour after that, which is partly like why he lost the audience he had, uh, which is wild because especially on the B-sides of those albums, you know, 33 and a third has amazing songs on it. You listen to Pure Smokey, which to me, that's a, that's a top five George Harrison song with or without the Beatles. That to me is just a beautiful song. You listen to that song and you think, oh my gosh, this is the most beautiful George song. What a beautiful soul he had. And yet he did not go out of his way for people to hear the song. 33 and a third was like completely like consigned to the dustbin. He certainly didn't promote it. He certainly didn't want anybody to hear it when it came out. It was just another album on his contract. So very, very strange how George was still capable of making such beautiful music, but really ambivalent about the positive effect he had on people with it. It's, it's really kind of sad and mysterious. I think it's interesting that the one time that he, you sort of mentioned it in the book, the one time that he, he kind of decides I'm going to make a hit record is with cloud nine. Cloud nine was the one time where George said, okay, I need a hit. I need to be famous. And it's a very interesting thing about George. He did not want to be an artist's artist. He did not want to be a cult figure. He did not want to be an admired, respected, low profile artist. If he wasn't selling records, he wouldn't make records at all. Very interesting thing about George. That's very hard to understand. You would think that for someone who had so much, about contempt for the limelight and that he would have said, I'm not making music for the marketplace. I'm going to sit with Ravi Shankar and, and just make a little guitar and sitar record. You know, I'm, I'm going to do my private introspective meditational records. And he did not want to do that at all. He, the only terms on which he wanted to make records was if they were huge mega sellers. And very interesting that way. Very interesting that, you know, a record like sometime in England, when I was in college, Everybody had some time in England. It's no mystery why everybody had some time in England. It had all those years ago on it. And it was an, people very much wanted the idea of a George Harrison album that was good, that was adult, that was you know, something new, that was him trying. I don't know how deeply you've listened to Somewhere in England. It, it doesn't really repay that sort of faith. Unconsciousness Rules is maybe the name of the catchiest song on the record. George is a very weird case in that he was not at all content to make small scale records. So the Traveling Wilburys was a really good situation for him to be in. Absolutely. Uh, so moving on from Mr. Harrison, we move on to Mr. McCartney. I love talking about Paul, especially his, his, his solo records. Your book and others that I've read recently have reminded me of kind of how low his stock was after about 82, right the way through to about 92, 93. Um, I was a kid growing up in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and I couldn't understand why all these magazines and TV shows or whatever, they would mock Paul a bit. And I was like, I listened to the songs on press, and I thought they were great. I didn't understand, obviously, any, any other context. Two kind of questions around that. Why do you think his reputation in the 80s really got so low? It's a strange thing. He was still writing so many great songs, but it's almost like people chose to punish him for all their dashed hopes for the Beatles. Uh, even in the 70s, when I was growing up, when Paul was a 
extremely beloved by you know kids like me. In the 80s, he was extremely beloved, but he was seen as he was just the target for so much irrational rage around whatever disappointments people had about the Beatles. Certainly after December 1980, that became very pronounced to the fact where a few months after December 1980, a book comes out called Shout, uh, which is at that point the biggest and at that point, like one of the best Beatles books ever done. Certainly one that everybody read and, and regarded as, as taking the Beatles story to a new level. And the premise of the book is that Paul completely sucked from the day he was born. He completely sucked now. He sucked in between. And the only thing he did right in his life was meet John Lennon, who was the one genius in the band and had these three incompetents that he was dragging as a burden all through the Beatles. That was the premise of Shout. Shout, it, it's, it's just astounding when you read it now and just the level of childishness about Paul, you know, like, again, the day he's born, he's complaining that Paul is an ugly baby. He's complaining that Paul, he's suggesting that Paul was not actually that sad when his mother died. A way out of line thing to say about Paul McCartney. The fact that Shout was by far the most popular Beatles book of its era, it tells you a lot about the contempt that people openly had for Paul McCartney in ways that to kids like you and me, just really baffling. So one of my very favorite Paul McCartney songs, definitely one of my favorite Paul solo songs, a song called So Bad, which is from 1983. It's from the album Pipes of Peace. It was, I think, the third or fourth single from it. it. It wasn't a song he regarded as major. It's funny that he's never done it live. And it was a song that was a hit for a very brief time and then slipped off the charts. But my gosh, you listen to So Bad and you think like anybody else who wrote that song, that would be the crowning glory of their career. If So Bad was your best song, you know, like there's so much going on in that Paul song, but also there's so much Paul carelessness going on. There's a lot of things that he's, he doesn't have his eye on the ball about. He's not really paying attention to what's going on with the production. So the production is quite bad. He's not really paying much attention to the lyrics. So the lyrics of that song are quite bad. It just changes narrators halfway through the song for no reason other than it seemed like this was a rough draft that he never came back to. There's a lot of decisions going into the song that are just really sort of inexplicable. And you kind of wish that Paul had put, you know, an extra, you know, six or seven more minutes of work into the song. And yet just the effortless beauty of the song, the effortless beauty of the vocal it's just, it's unfathomable. And it's amazing how many artists in the 80s were banging their heads against the wall, trying to create something anywhere near as beautiful as so bad. But people took it for granted coming from Paul because all Paul could do at that point was piss people off. A very minor episode in the 80s that's been completely written out of Paul history by him as well as by everybody else is when he sent his telegram to Margaret Thatcher complaining about her treatment of the health workers in 1982. And this is just... It was shocking at the time. It was big news at the time. It's really funny that people completely forget this happened. That Paul McCartney, the biggest pop star in the world, the most beloved person arguably in the world in 1982, he sends this outraged telegram to Margaret Thatcher telling her what the miners did to Ted Heath, the nurses will do to you. And going off with rage about her treatment of nurses. And it's very strange because it was very different from the image that people had of Paul at the time. The week he, he did that, he's doing interviews for the 20th anniversary of Love Me Do. So it, it was not a moment where people wanted to hear Paul get mad about stuff, but it, it was a huge deal. And it's something that, you know, has been basically written out of his history. I, to me, this is kind of like a remarkable gesture. I mean, to me, it compares to, you know, 
John sending his MBE back to the queen, which was a trivial gesture, you know, but he treated as a joke, but that gesture went down in history. Whereas everybody's kind of forgotten that, that Paul had this feeling. And of course, Paul felt very close to the nurses because of Mary McCartney, because of his mother. This is a case of Paul taking a stand where no other rock star was willing to take a stand. And people now, Paul fans now, would be blown away that any rock star of his generation, let alone Paul, was the one to send this telegram. But because he was Paul and everything he did was you know, dismissed, it completely passed out of his story. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. Um, uh, so we've seen an uplift in the view of Paul's 70s work. We mentioned in correspondence before this, you've been listening to Ram. I mean, Ram is one of the most legend of Ram has only gone one way. The first solo record, McCartney, seemed to be like inventing lo-fi. Even things like Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, when they were reissued recently, suddenly they've got a rustic charm to them, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Whereas, as you know, they were dismissed quite heartily by elements of the rock press at the time and to a certain extent the public. Um, Do you think we'll see... Uh, an uptick in the view of records like Pipes of Peace, Press, Broad Street even. Uh, do you think there's a, a huge amount of worth in, in those albums as well? Absolutely, Joe. I think that's a brilliant point, and I think it's only a matter of time. Honestly, like the resurgence in interest in Paul's 70s work, it's remarkable, and that you know, he has expressed sort of amusement and bewilderment by it. It's funny, a, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who was 23. And we were talking about Paul's solo albums. And he said, well, you know, my favorite is Ram, but I guess everybody likes that one. Just, I found it hard to laugh. And I was like, this might sound strange, but, but when I was your age, nobody liked Ram. Ram was, when it came out, it was widely universally dismissed and mocked, not just by the rock press, but by rock radio, which wanted nothing to do with it, and the rock audience, which was hugely embarrassed by it. It's really strange that the resurrection of Ram is one of the strangest stories of a canonical album in my lifetime. Even 10 years ago, it would have sounded really strange to say, you know, Ram is a masterpiece that is universally acknowledged to the point where it's kind of boring to praise it. It's now seen rightly as, as a masterpiece. Harry Styles, who's a huge, huge, huge McCartney solo fan, was interviewing him for a cover story in Rolling Stone. And it's really funny, he, you know, he's, he's crazy about London town and back to the egg. He was talking about this, you know, when he was living in Tokyo and there was this vinyl bar that he used to go to and they didn't have any of the, the 70s wings album and that drove him crazy. So he brought in London town and brought in back to the egg and said, okay, I need to hear Arrow Through Me every single day. Harry Styles does not go through a day without listening to Arrow Through Me. And but these are records that for years after they came out were just, you know, dismissed if they were remembered at all. And so it, it, it's funny to see that as time goes on, the weirdness of all the things the Beatles did solo has been and will continue to be appreciated. And I think in general, as time goes on, as you said about Ram, that story only goes one way. People will forget the ones that didn't work and they'll remember the ones that are great. So it's unlike like Temporary Secretary, which now qualifies as a legit famous Paul McCartney song. <laughs> You know, which 10 years ago would have been unthinkable. Nobody knew that song. It, it was a B-side from an album that people totally dismissed. Now he does it in his live show because people love that song. It's a beautiful thing to see. I mean, part of it with Ram, I, I, I think a huge thing in terms of people getting into Ram, kind of forgotten now, but in, in the late 2000s, there was a blog called Fast Ram. And it was 
somebody who just posted, they, they bought this album at a junk shop. They never heard of it. Who ever heard of a Paul McCartney album called Ram? And they put it on. They didn't realize that the record player was at the wrong speed. And so they were playing it at 45 RPM instead of 33. So they were playing a very fast version of Ram. And they were playing it for weeks before they realized that it was supposed to go the other way. But they put out a, a sound cloud of fast Ram. And fast Ram is unbelievable. I think a, a lot of my friends who did not like Ram at this point, I would just send them the clip and I would say, listen to this. And if you don't get Ram at that point, like listening to fast Ram will clue you in because, you know, and, and you could argue the original album should have been faster because fast Ram sounds so great. I love it the way it is, but it, it's funny that a way to totally convince skeptics about Ram was to, to try the fast Ram. So like you said, I, and I think it's a very beautiful way that you put it, Joe, that the story only goes one way, that people will keep discovering you know, like people discover the great songs on Dark Horse and 33 and a third. People discover the great songs on Ringo's Rotogravure, you know, like definitely discover Bocuse of Blues. I've, I've spent my whole life proselytizing for that album. I think that will just continue. Where a record, you know, even like fairly like late in the game for Paul, Run Devil Run from 1999, which is a virtually unknown record. It, it was not a commercial hit. It did not get played on the radio. It's, it's one of his most emo emotional, one of his most intense albums. It's after Linda died, he made an album of covers. These are songs that he grew up listening to, songs that they listened to together. It's really like a love note to her. It's just, it's incredibly beautiful. And the sadness and devastation that he expresses in that album that normally he doesn't let himself express in his own songs. You listen to him do a you know totally obscure 50s rockabilly song like No Other Baby. It's like nothing else in his catalog. And boy, People haven't caught up with that album yet. Wait till they hear that one. And that's something beautiful about the Beatles story. It's, it's true about the Beatles records. It's true about the Beatles solo records. Like it takes time. People discover it more and more. You write for me quite beautifully in the book about Yoko's uh, Season of Glass uh, and in particular the, the song Silver Horse on there. Um, you, said, you say in the, in the book that that record uh, which is from 1981, made sense to you as kind of a new wave fan. Um, it made me think about John and Yoko, obviously, at, the, at that time. It kind of suggests that she may have been going in a, a different musical direction to John. Can we make any any guesses? I don't know how you feel about the songs that are on Double Fantasy and on Milk and Honey. Um, where do you think John was going musically possibly through the 80s where do you think he would have fitted in uh, and how do you think that that would have compared to what Yoko would produce I think that they would have kept that experimental spirit together walking on thin ice is really like such a key song I think that's the direction that they would have gone in a really like a, a, a funny John story that just a lot of people don't know is is that the one inspiration, the single-handed inspiration, the artist who inspired him to make music again years after he hadn't touched his guitar was the B-52s. You know, he was in a club and he heard Rock Lobster and he said, my God, this sounds exactly like Yoko's music, as he told Rolling Stone at the time. Well, time to grab me a guitar and wake up the wife. And hearing the B-52s, Rock Lobster, which many people at the time even just dismissed as a novelty song, that to him, it told him where he wanted to go. And listen to Rock Lobster back to back with Walking on Thin Ice. And it, you know, it's pretty clear. I think they would have gone more in that direction. And you know, I love Double Fantasy. I love Milk and Honey even more. To me, like it's a trilogy. Double Fantasy, 
season of glass, milk and honey. That that's a triptych for me that just like it holds up beautifully as a sign for where John and Yoko would have gone musically together after that. The songs on milk and honey are so incredible. It, and it's it's funny that you, you listen to milk and honey and think like, why was this even left off? Double fantasy, but double fantasy was a very carefully planned statement, you know, like up uh, you listen to a song like I'm stepping out, you know, and what a phenomenal song. It's so playful. It's so full of life. It's so full of energy and excitement. It's, it's, it's a song that John is not coy about, you know, like the parts of his life that are stagnant, that he needs to get over, that he needs to get past. He's not being coy about the obstacles in his life, but he's, he's, I mean, he's very direct about his inspiration and enthusiasm to get past those obstacles, to make music again, to, to live a life again. I mean, it's really kind of astonishing that, you know, a rock star of his stature recorded a song like I'm Stepping Out in, in 1980. And to me, that's like a, a, a beautiful song that, that points to the future. You know, we heard him sing I'm Stepping Out. We never got to hear him step out. And that's it's heartbreaking and, and it continues to be heartbreaking. It will never not be heartbreaking. The one thing that I get from Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey is the humor, the wit in John's songs that the other three just in there, you know, as I said, I love Paul's solo albums, probably to an unhealthy level. Got a lot of affection. <laughs> I've got a lot of affection for those those late 70s uh, George albums. But none of them have got that humour and that wit of, you know, a song like Dear Yoko from Double Fantasy, which it never becomes saccharine. It never becomes, it's got enough wit and bite to it that none of the other three really can can achieve. I think that's one of the things that we lost was that was that wit. Um, and um, you know, that's that's one of the as you say, that's one of the heartbreaking things. But yeah, I, I love the humor aspect to a lot of those songs. Absolutely, and and it's it's funny when you listen to Milk and Honey, and I don't know if you're into Milk and Honey as a kid, like hearing it like as a teenager, I was like, these songs are so good. Why why did they get left off the proper album? But clearly, he wanted Double Fantasy to be a very serious album, a very like sincere album he didn't want any levity on it so like all the funny songs he, he kept for milk and honey even a song like nobody told me which is in some ways such a casual it's designed to sound like a tossed off song of course he couldn't have tossed it off at all but like the humor and the vocal in that one it, you know, as well as the humor in, in the guitar the humor in the lyrics just everything about that song it's a song he left off the album he was making at the time which is just kind of incredible but most peculiar mama wrote Oh, you know, like there's so much like like levity and just and mirth and joy in music making in that period of, of John and Yoko's music. And they brought it out of each other. It's funny that that's something I love about Season of Glass is that Yoko's writing very much John type songs. You know, she's she's not writing Yoko type songs. She never made an album that really sounded like Season of Glass for the songs have, you know, beginnings, middle endings, verse, course, verse. You know, she wasn't interested in writing songs like that. And also there's this like sort of 50s doo-wop theme through the album you know that, that was john's department for her to write a song like silver horse is her very much saying okay i have this traumatic thing i have to sing about what would john do and she's trying to write you know like the kind of song that john would do it very much it comes from angel baby by rosie and the originals which john always cited as one of the main sources of all the music he made you know yoko's trying to write an angel baby type song you know like a, a very like old school rock and roll guitar ballad and it's funny that it does not come naturally to her and the clumsiness is part of why it's beautiful. You, look at, you listen to Harry Nilsson do that song, Silver Horse on the tribute album, Every Man Has a Woman Loves Him. And it, it's funny because it comes more naturally to Harry, the performance doesn't really work because 
you know, like to him singing mel melody like this is easy. For Yoko, what's, what's so moving about it is the awkwardness and that she's trying so hard to do something that would have been so simple for John. That's what really like adds such a level of emotional intensity to the music. There's a chapter in the book which is where you talk about 80s Beatles and 90s Beatles. One of the big parts of 90s Beatles, I'm sure for both of us and for a large amount of people listening, was the Beatles anthology, specifically the Beatles anthology film uh, and also the, the two new recordings and, of course, the three double CD sets. Um, you say in the book that the world was hungry for the Beatles again uh, in that kind of mid-90s period. Uh, why do you think that was? What events led up to that hunger kind of coming back to the world? I think it was the massive explosion of music in the 90s, which was such a phenomenal era for music. And every single part of music was taking some kind of crazy inspiration from the Beatles. And it's weird, the 80s Beatles thing. I mean, I always love on the podcast when you talk about how bewildering that was for you, specifically growing up as a Beatles fan in the 80s, you know, like, I was a teenage Beatles fan then, and it was like, wow, what is the adult's problem with this? You know, because people were always taking the Beatles down a notch in the 80s. If, if something like anthology, if they'd tried something like anthology in the 80s, not just the media, but the public at large would have said, dinosaurs, going back to the well, it's pitiful, it's sad. The boomers just can't let go. Like, it's pathetic that they're trying to force this down the kid's throat when the kids should be listening to, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood and and Echo the Money Men instead. And what happens in the 90s is because that sort of generational angst has been replaced by, you know, the fact that those of us who grew up loving the Beatles are now adults buying records. And we don't see it as a pathetic, we don't see it as any kind of nostalgia thing. And that's a really, you know, it's weird that in the 80s, the Beatles were always talked about in terms of nostalgia. You watch any George Harrison TV interview from that period, it's really sad because George basically says the only reason people care about the Beatles is nostalgia. They just want to relive their childhood. Even you know when he's promoting Cloud Nine, an album that very much is like, hi, I used to be in the Beatles, please buy my record. He can't stop talking. He's like, yeah, the Beatles, you know, it, it's cute. It's nostalgic. That's, that's what he said in practically every interview he gave at that point. And you know, people really did see it that way. And it was really weird for kids like you or me we're like, no, we don't have any nostalgia. Actually, we do not remember the 60s, you know, was not watching the Ed Sullivan show, you know, was not at Woodstock, did not drop acid to Sergeant Pepper. Like this has nothing to do with nostalgia. And in the 90s, because there was so much music happening, you know, rock was exploding, techno was exploding, hip hop was exploding, R&B was exploding. All these different genres were absolutely exploding. The music business was exploding. You know, people bought more CDs. People bought more music than ever before or since. You can argue all you want to about whether the music was actually great. I happen to think it was one of the greatest eras, if not the greatest, for music ever. But the fact that, you know, like you look at what was on top of the British charts at the time, you know, like you look at Pulp and Oasis, Blur, and, you know, on the other hand, something like Massive Attack, Tricky, you know, like the fact that all this different music all over the map is grabbing some piece of what the Beatles did and taking it somewhere different. So you listen to, I remember listening to Radiohead's OK Computer for the first time. I remember hearing Karma Police. And I was like, good Lord, this song is just, they just took a piano hook from Sexy Sadie and just built this whole song around it. And then they built a whole album around that. And I was like, wow, that's brilliant. And they took it way beyond anything. And 
you know, it's like what the Beatles did with the blues. It wasn't anything nostalgic and it wasn't like anything retro. They just said, here's something great that we can find a way to use. So, you know, Karma Police does indeed. It sounds very much like the piano hook from 60s, 80, but it also is completely original. OK, computer, totally original. That things like that were happening, you know, right and left. So you heard the Chemical Brothers doing Setting Sun, which was, you know, the Chemical Brothers were big techno group. Like they started out, they were just, you know, for like for club fiends and they crossed over to sort of a pop rock audience. Then they had this big hit, Setting Sun. Mill Gallagher sang vocals, which was maybe part of why it became a hit, maybe 20%. But no, it's, it's, it's because they like, they completely rip off the drums from Tomorrow Never Knows. They make it rock. They make it fantastic. Lots of people who love that song had no idea what Tomorrow Never Knows was and did not know where those drums came from. And it was just really beautiful that it was celebrating the Beatles as a right now thing rather than a nostalgic thing. So I think that's why 90s Beatles is really where in so many ways the story begins. That's where the Beatles really lost the generational baggage that was for better, for worse, in my opinion, very much for worse, was hindering people from, from appreciating the Beatles fully in the 70s and 80s. I remember on a similar kind of note, I remember watching Top of the Pops, which I'm sure you were aware was a, a huge weekly music yeah. magazine show over here in the UK. And in 1996, you will also be aware uh, the song I'll Be There For You by the Rembrandts, uh, which was the theme to the biggest <laughs> the, the biggest TV show uh, in in the world, probably for at least for the first uh, for, you know four or five oh, years yeah. of its run. Recently, we've seen people break down in tears because those actors have reunited for a day. And <laughs> and on top of the pops, there were the Rembrandts. And forgive me, I can't remember the name of the lead singer, but he had a Hoffner, had a McCartney Hoffner bass in his hand. And I was like, and of course, I'd only seen Paul with this. And suddenly there were these guys with this song that was huge on the radio, as I'm sure it was in the States, as it was over here. And he had a Hoffner bass. And I was like, that's the Beatles. And it was a, that was a real mind-blowing event for me yeah i love that i remember having a similar experience seeing dave wakeling with the english beat and the way that dave wakeling played his guitar like left-handed even though he wasn't left-handed but that's just the way paul mccartney held his offner so like that's how dave wakeling wanted to hold his guitar in the 80s people almost felt obliged to be mocking or distanced about echoing the beatles in a way that was really kind of self-defeating and, and in my opinion, really sad, but it reflected a lot of things that were going on in the 80s. You look at the footage from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when the Beatles were inducted in the 80s, and it's really weird how this was really alienating to, you know, like kids who might be watching, that there wasn't that sense of the Beatles as being connected to right now, which of course they were, but the industry just like had no concept of that. Whereas you look at the 90s, you know, there's all these new types of music that are coming out of nowhere, all these new types of music that are becoming popular. And everybody is like, yeah, we stole this from the Beatles. We stole that from the Beatles. You know, the fact that like that the Wu-Tang Clan were huge Beatles fans, Chef Raekwon said, you know, like, yeah, like we're kind of the Black Beatles. Uh, you can call me Chef McCartney. And you know, the Beatles influence through hip hop is just such a like fascinating story in itself. I remember listening to the battle rhyme with Kendrick and Big Sean and they're basically like boasting about how their Kendrick is saying he wants to be the best rapper ever he wants to murder everybody else in the game he's making some really harsh head hominem threats and he says blessings to Paul McCartney and that line just kind of jumped out of me I was like well, what the hell is he talking about there like 
he wants to be at that level. He wants to be wants to be Paul McCartney. That is like, imagine something like that happening in the 80s. Like the Beatles, after the 90s, they reached a point where they were just on a different level and everybody had to acknowledge that. And everybody did it and everybody had enthusiasm for that. Just briefly staying on the anthology, the film itself, um, which I'm, you know, I'm sure most people listening have watched, I'm sure like us, countless times at different points in our lives at different times. Um, what did you make of the film at the time? Uh, and how do you uh, kind of feel about it now? How do you think it kind of sits, sits now in, in Beatle kind of history? Watching it now, just, you know, like you sit down with, you know, the 10 DVDs and you're going to have a pretty good weekend. You know, like it's just a joy to watch. It's just amazing how fun it was at that time that this was rolling out night after night and people were just really excited to watch it. There wasn't any of that, you know, like 80s sneering about forcing things down people's throat because people could not have been hungrier for this. Uh, I remember um, speaking with Toby Vale from Bikini Kill, pioneering genius Riot Girl band, one of my very favorite bands of all time. And and she was talking about the album that they were making at the time. They were in the studio doing Reject All American. And, and they were watching, they, they'd be in the studio all day. Then at night, they'd watch Anthology. And they'd come into the studio and each day's sessions would begin with, they'd play a Beatles song that they heard the night before. So, you know, like they'd be playing Misery, you know, which was like a, a song that they just enjoyed in Anthology. And that's, that's how that album became the masterpiece and classic that it became. I love sort of, how anthology happened at a time when people were ready to celebrate the Beatles in a way that they maybe wouldn't have been a few years earlier. Certainly, it, it, as with Ram, as, as, as you said, that story only goes one way. Uh, anthology now, it, you know, it's really amazing how nothing in it seems dated ex- except like arguably the production on the new songs. It's funny that the 60s songs don't sound one bit dated, but the 90s song sounds a bit dated. <laughs> um, Absolutely, yeah. Just because of the production, but it's amazing how just how much is there it's funny how the the video version of the one anthology which just came out just a few years ago completely unheralded there wasn't any fanfare a lot of people don't even know it exists it was mind-blowing for me all this footage was just sitting there uh you can see a lot of it it's in anthology but it looks really shabby by comparison in anthology we often hear people say anthology reads needs to be redone visually which i certainly agree but in the 80s, were you a fan of the complete Beatles? Yes. In fact, I had that on a VHS, which not a commercial VHS. My dad had recorded it off the TV. It was, must, have been broad, <laughs> must have been broadcast on the TV. Yeah, I, I think it's not remembered now. And I don't think it's, it's not available anywhere now uh, easily. They totally suppressed it. I love it. It's weird how they've totally suppressed it. It was on TV constantly then. If, in the US, it was on public television, PBS. And it was on like pretty much weekly. Almost anybody my age would have seen it a few times. It was always on. And it was so good. And there was so much footage in it. And still isn't available anywhere else. I'm glad I still have my VHS in it. But I'm glad you have your VHS in it, of it. But it's amazing that you know, there's so much that's in anthology that you know is is a more complete version of what's in the complete beatles but it's also amazing that there's so much in the complete beatles that is still obscure my favorite like i I mentioned this in the book there's the tv interview with the fan the teenager from brooklyn 
who like has a painting that she did of Paul McCartney. And she's like, I call this the sprout of a new generation. And it's, it's just so beautiful hearing her talk about this painting, Paul McCartney. It's funny, I, I read about that in the book. And afterwards, I got an email from a reader who says, I know that lady. She lives in Coney Island now. She's my neighbor. She's like, it's really amazing because at this point, you know, it's so hard to find or see the complete Beatles. She, she was like, it was mind blowing that you remember that. And yes, she still loves to talk about Paul McCartney. And, and it did my heart good, but it, it's wild that there's so much in the complete Beatles it was such a, a wonderful, wonderful way to tell that story. And the book that goes with it is, is really wonderful as well. Um, you know, like anthology, you watch these things and you don't notice, oh, the film's a little shabby. This visual is a little outdated. We're just like completely blown away by what's on the screen. Anthology, I can watch any any day of the week. It's almost like Goodfellas, right? My wife always makes the joke about Goodfellas and men that whenever Goodfellas is on, you're just hooked. And she's like, you've seen this movie literally hundreds of times before. You have it memorized. I'm like, oh, I'll just wait till the LaFonsa heist, you know, like, or oh, I'll just wait till they bump off Murray. My wife never tires of, of making fun of this, but like there's this weird connection between like, Man and Goodfellas, if it's if it's on like anthologies like that for us, watch like a few minutes of anthology. There's no way you want to stop. You know, it's beautiful and it's beautiful that it could happen and that it happened, you know, at the time when 90s Beatles made it possible for something like that to happen. It wasn't seen as in any way blocking or interrupting anything else that was going on. And music was seen as very much a part of it, which it was. So uh, to conclude our conversation, Rob, um, I was curious to find out if your relationship with the Beatles changed in any way, and, and if so, how, whilst writing the book, obviously, you know, I've spoken to many authors, as you know, on the podcast, and I understand that writing any book is a, a huge, almost emotional undertaking, in particularly a, a book like this. Uh, did your feelings, relationship about the Beatles, with the Beatles change at all after writing the book? Made me more of a fan, like you probably I learn things about the Beatles every day. It's really amazing. And I'm constantly amazing that there's people made all these cluck clucking with anthology. Like, like, oh boy, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel this time. As it turned out, no, not even close. And it's, it's funny, like just how much is out there that we keep learning. I remember very much when they did the Abbey Road box. And before that, the White Album box, just a few years ago in 2018. And I was... Uh, listening to it with Giles Martin in Abbey Road Studios. And, you know, he, he didn't have a plan. So I, he, he was like, okay, what do you want to hear? I'm like, ooh, I'll take this, I'll take that. Any other versions of this? He played the version of Good Night with all four of them singing harmony while John does a guitar track that's you know very much in the finger-picking style of Dear Prudence or Julia. And hearing this in Abbey Road and just kind of like, staring out the window, of course, staring out the window at one of the trees that we all know from the album cover. And I'm like, at this point, I'm one of the first humans to hear this. And I'm like, this has been sitting in a vault for 50 friggin' years. Like, how is this possible? Nobody knew this existed. I was like, A, this completely refutes everything we thought we knew about the White Album. We all thought they hated each other at this point. Here they are, all four of them singing harmony on this song. It's mind-blowing that that existed and that we all thought we knew the story of the White Album and we hadn't heard that. You know, an another moment from, from the White Album scraps is there's a version of Julia where John is, he begins, he's like chatting, all right, Paul, you know, da, da, da. I'm like, Paul's in the room when he's singing Julia? 
that's unfathomable to me. To me, Julia is John all alone. It, it's, it's him in total solitude, the only Beatles song that's just John, John and his guitar. And the fact that he was capable of singing that song with Paul in the room and that Paul might've even inspired him to, to sing it the way Ringo would have, the way that Paul brought out that courage and, and cheered him on. Completely mind-blowing. And I, it was one of those very, very frequent moments where I'm like, everything I thought I knew about the Beatles is you know, kind of out the window. And it's amazing how often that happens. And it's funny, I, I follow a lot of sites online that are fan sites that are teenage girls that started during the pandemic. Uh, as far as I could tell, a lot of teenage girls were quarantined with their dads in lockdown and became Beatles fans. Before that, they'd been One Direction fans or Taylor fans. And so they put that sort of hyper research oriented, you know, super fan energy into the Beatles. And they're constantly finding photos I've never seen. They're finding quotes I've never seen because they're, you know, like, because teenage girls are so knowledgeable today. They have sources for all this stuff. They find everything. Found this photo. It was just last summer. I'd never seen this photo before. Maybe you've seen it. It's John in Liverpool. The last time he ever went back to Liverpool. He's visiting Auntie Mimi. He's going home. He's putting his suitcase in the trunk to drive home. The boot, I guess, as, as you say in your country. He looks so defeated, so weirdly out of place, so like confused, so vulnerable, so childish. Again, you probably know this photo and have known it for years. I had never seen it. And I was like, I love that we, we're still learning the story from each other as we go along. And no matter how well you think you might know this story, there's always stuff that's coming out that's new. And, and that to me is you know, the most exciting and, and most mysterious and in many ways, most terrifying thing about the Beatles story is that there's no end to it, that, that there's always something new to be surprised by. So while, while I was writing the book, I was like, you know, it's really going to be painful when you know, I have to keep learning new things about the Beatles after the book comes out and when new stuff about the Beatles emerges that nobody knew. It's almost like an automatic thing. It's this weird story that doesn't need anybody to push it doesn't need anybody to, to convert anybody, doesn't need anybody to persuade anybody. It, it's just a story that you know, people just fall in love with. Every culture, every generation all around the world, every personality type, it's a beautiful thing to see. It certainly is. Uh, what a lovely way to end our conversation, Rob. It's been uh, such a pleasure talking to you, and I would like to thank you for, for writing the book. It's uh, a real eye-opener and a game-changer for me. Thanks for your time, Rob. Thank you so much, Joe. Again, huge fan of this podcast. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for pushing the story forward. And, and, and thank you for, for ringing the bell for Paul McCartney's press album.